welcome to Exploring Cybersecurity, the podcast where we deep dive into all aspects of cybersecurity news and trends. I'm your host today, Jeremy Ventura, field CISO at ThreadX. And today we have a really special episode where we're going to be focused on the recent news regarding ransomware and what's happening around uh, the casinos here in Las Vegas. But today it's not just me. I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Chris Denby-White. Chris, how are you today? I'm very well, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on today. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. And Chris is actually joining us all the way from uh, the UK. So I uh, really appreciate uh, you joining me here with the time zone difference as well. Not a problem at all. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, a little bit, Chris. Chris is actually the chief security officer for Next DLP, which you'll get into a little bit about what his current role is. But Chris is actually an accomplished information security professional with a wealth of experience in both the public and private sectors. He has a background as a former police and intelligence officer, where he's built his career in system design, defense, and governance. Chris has held many various roles, including serving as a member of the Office of the CISO at Deutsche Bank. And he is a highly regarded for his expertise in cyber analysis and is currently leading the team at NextDLP. Chris is also an active contributor to the advisory board of the SANS Institute and has helped played a pivotal role in the development of ISC squared CISSP exam by existing in certification question running. Chris, awesome background. I can't wait to get into this conversation because you not just have the public experience, but you also have the private experience now working for a vendor uh, as well. So Chris, before we even get going into the recent news, uh, can you just tell the audience, I, I know every time our audience likes to see a uh, chief security officer, they're like, what does that actually mean? Is that the same thing as a CISO or is that a little different? That's a really great question, and it's something that I'm not too sure on the difference, but I can speak for what I do. Um, so I'm the chief security officer of Next DLP, so that covers a whole raft of things you'd imagine a CISO doing, chief information security officer, but also on my plate as well is the physical core security side of things. So as well as information and hackers and computer systems and those kind of things, I also do things like cameras and doors and locks and clear desks and things like that as well. So that's also in my remit, hence the lack of the eye, but uh, it certainly does include the information. Awesome. No, that, that's that's also really beneficial for our, a lot of our listeners who are just looking to get into their cybersecurity field or are interested in it. Uh, I, I know you can, you and I can both agree that sometimes we have a lot of different titles in this field and a lot of different acronyms. And so uh, we all appreciate when you get to explain kind of what your title means, what you specifically do. So thank you for that. Um, without further ado, let's get right into kind of the hot news and topic of what's going on. Um, I think worldwide, we have all seen the news about what's going on right now with MGM Entertainment and Caesars Entertainment, what's happening with the resort and casinos. Uh, for those who don't know, just about a week ago, uh, MGM has come out and said uh, that they were affected with a large cybersecurity incident. Um, so much more that we've actually seen them even um, produce an 8K filing uh, of the material incident, which we can get a little bit into that and what that means as well uh, with the SEC, or Securities Exchange Committee. And so um, over the last week, there's been a lot of different news, um, a lot of different information has come out, including even from the threat or uh, supposedly the threat actors that have affected MGM and Caesars. And so just getting into it, what we know so far is there was a ransomware attack on MGM um, so much that MGM actually had to shut some of their systems off online. And we've actually seen this affect normal people. And what I mean by that is a lot of the times, if you're not technical, if you're not in cybersecurity, you go, oh yeah, there's an incident or maybe my credit card got scammed or you're not necessarily so familiar about what's going on. 
But this one had an actual effect from a physical standpoint of all the people that were in Vegas that weekend and still are in Vegas where ATMs weren't working. We saw rumors about digital keys not working to get into your hotel room or the parking meter wasn't working how to get in and out of the casino garage. Um, ATM machines, as I mentioned before, even I saw actually on TikTok, uh, one person went to a restaurant uh, at one of the uh, one of the casinos and was trying to pay, but it was cash only. But then they went to go to the ATM and they couldn't take cash out. So they're like, well, how do I pay? And so I, I think we've seen a little bit of chaotic times and chaos uh, when it comes in what's going on right now in Vegas. Um, we're going to get more into exactly kind of what we know, what's going on, who the threat actors behind this, how do they operate? But Chris, I just want to start with you right off, the, right off the cusp. When you woke up and you saw the news on LinkedIn or on the BBC or wherever you got your news information, what was, what was your initial reaction when you saw this? My initial thought was, um, like yours, there's a real world impact to this. You know, there's always a real world impact regardless of the kind of type of cyber attack. But as you say, this is a lot more visible for people. And that example you gave of somebody trying to pay at a restaurant, then being able to, then not being able to get cash from uh, a bank machine, it just really highlighted to me the vulnerability of our connected world. You know, all of these things are now hooked up to each other in a way that just wasn't the case 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, these kind of systemic attacks, they can really spider out to have a much larger impact on the day-to-day -day activities of people. So my first thought was like, wow, this is very not good. And then obviously my second thought was like, okay, so who did it? You know, um, way too early to tell, but you know, we all try and figure it out, you know, in our kind of minds in the back rooms, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you, you mentioned, and I'm gonna hit on a couple of different points you just talked about there, how interconnected we actually are. And I think, you know, highlighting that where whether you're a casino, whether you're a water treatment facility, whether you sell candy online, no matter where you are, when you think about how these systems, how our networks are so interconnected, not just from a digital standpoint, which is kind of what we're in the field for, but also from a physical standpoint, you even mentioned part of your role, even at Next, where you're talking about physical keys and locks, and it goes beyond and can transcend beyond just the technical and the digital transformation of everything, but it goes also to physical stuff. And we saw that where even when we look back uh, in time a couple of years ago with Colonial Pipeline here in the United States, where I remember that was chaotic. People were trying to fill up gas and, you know, the gas pipeline was down. They were putting gas in plastic baggies to see if they could store that because they didn't know if they could get gas tomorrow, go to work. And that's just one example. But even coming into modern day and kind of what we're seeing here in the last week, where we talk about ATMs or physical structures or whatever might be not being operable or operable for consumers, that also puts a huge weight on the physical staff that are actually boots on the ground there in Vegas. I saw videos where you even had vice presidents and managers of uh, these casinos that were coming down and working the actual floor. I know, uh, again, I saw on uh, Twitter, or I guess now we'll call it X, um, but uh, I saw that somebody complaining that the wait times to get into one of the casinos was like something like three hours just to check in. And I mean, you could imagine that's caused frustration from people. Uh, they have a bad taste and experience in the month. They're like, maybe I'm not going to stay at one of these properties again. So we're really seeing, to your point, how cyber can affect consumers. And we're seeing it more and more. And you and I live this every day. So we know that this is the case. But I think for the everyday individual, that's not necessarily always so prone to knowing everything in cyber. 
this really kind of hits home, right? They actually have an effect on you and how you go about your vacation in Las Vegas, for example. No, it certainly does. And for a lot of people, you know, your normal person on the street, you know, the importance of these cybersecurity issues doesn't ever really hit home until it affects somebody not being able to do something. And um, I think, like you say, the queues to get into Vegas, uh, you know, the, the friction at being able to buy or pay for anything, you know, that's certainly highlighting kind of um, some useful lessons to be learned. Absolutely. And you actually described it really, really good, which is a great segue. You said it's almost like a spider web and hence the name spider. So getting right into it, what we know so far, allegedly, uh, the group Scattered Spider, which is believed to be, the hackers are believed to be either from the US or the UK. And there's even reports coming that they're, some of them are even young as 19, 20, 21 years old. We're talking about very young individuals having a massive effect on billion, uh, I think MGM, I think I saw it was a $33 billion organization. And when we look at Scattered Spider, um, just through history, we've known that they have operated in what we call as a ransomware, as a service kind of affiliate uh, to something bigger. And so far, what we're hearing is uh, the Black Cat ransomware group, which is very, very predominant um, and has a massive effect globally. Um, I think besides Lockbit ransomware right now, I think uh, I saw they counted for it in 2022 was the number two ransomware group as far as how much money they collected um, from yeah. you know crypto and the effect that they've had. And the way these ransomware as a service groups work, it's really a business when you think about this. It's all about, for the most part, financial gain. Um, you know, damaging the brand's reputation, but at the same time, they operate in a, in a fact where, for example, if I'm one affiliate, I might say, I'm going to do the attack vector. For example, I might go fish a couple different corporate employees, but once I'm in, Chris and his affiliate group might come in there and actually deploy the malware or deploy the ransomware. And then we may have another affiliate who's actually doing the negotiation. What's happening is I specialize in one part, Chris specializes in his group in another part, and our third friend specializes in another part. What happens? We're all successful. We all make commission off each other or make commission off the total amount that we can collect. And so what does that mean for ransom groups? Speed and velocity. Can I, I, I can attack organizations faster. I can focus on what I'm really good at and I can outsource part of this entire operation to experts and expertise who have built, for example, different types of malware or who are really good at negotiation. So Chris, any, anything a little bit more? I know definitely in the last two to three years, this ransomware as a service concept and how hackers work has really become kind of at the forefront of how they're operating and how they're attacking organizations. But um, what are you hearing and what are you seeing as far as ransomware as a service, kind of the impact on organizations, but also a little bit tied to MGM? Yeah, I think, like you mentioned, ransomware as a service, it's a natural evolution. You know, um, people that aren't ransomware gangs, you know, kind of we normal business people are starting to move to manage service mod models and, you know, Everything's pushed up into the cloud as SaaS. And we've seen the criminal gangs do the same thing. You know, it's uh, for all the reasons that you've mentioned, it works really well for them as a criminal enterprise, but it also doesn't half muddy the waters of being able to um, figure out who has done these attacks. You know, everybody, like I mentioned before, you know, my first question was like, ah, so who is this? Is this, is this a nation state trying to destabilize financial things? And you've seen with groups like LF and with Lockbit over the last, uh, over the last few years, the initial press lines are, this is most definitely a nation-based attack from this country or that country. But when you dig deeper into it, you just see that actually it's a more localized group of people that are using that as a service and isn't necessarily 
politically motivated or sponsored by some state-sponsored intervention. It's largely around the money. And I think something that I comment on and something that is actually really quite interesting about Las Vegas as an industry, especially the hotels and the casinos, is they seem to me to be the perfect storm of a target. You know, firstly, they're a cash-rich business. Loads of money goes through the casinos all of the time. They have a minimum tolerance to being down. As we've seen, the news over the last week has been like spouting various different figures of how much MGM are losing per day because of this attack. But also the personal and financial information, you imagine the footfall and the throughput of different people through Las Vegas casinos and hotels and the number of uh, amounts of financial information, personally identifiable information that passes through their systems must be astronomical. So, you know, I'm not surprised that a criminal group would go after them because they're just such an attractive target. Totally agree. And I actually saw an article this morning when I woke up. Um, it was from an analyst. So is it true or not? Who knows? But they said something on average that somewhere between an estimate, I think it was like 4.2 to potentially $8.1 million a day they're losing on this cyber incident. And I think what's really important for, uh, for just the audience listening to this is even though the ransomware group probably, in most cases, right, not necessarily talking about MGM, are going to ask for the ransom, right? They're going to ask for some type of monetary value. It might be 30 million, it might be 300 million, whatever it might be. After they're asking for that, though, the amount of money it takes an organization to actually rebuild or to rebuild databases or to train employees, we got to buy new tooling. We have to do cyber insurance. We have to pay off lawyers and third-party consultants that are coming in right now, kind of like parachuters and trying to look through their network and figure out what's going on. When we think about the amount of money it costs organizations when they actually get hit with a cyber incident or a breach, specifically ransomware, it transcends way beyond the money that they were either asked for by the criminal or actually paid or didn't pay. And I think that's that's where I saw I saw the analyst report. was like, oh, four to eight million. And I'm like, that's it? I actually think it potentially could be way higher, especially at the end of this thing. We know it's going to be just from history and time. And, Absolutely. I think there's a common yeah. conception there that, uh, you know, you get hit with ransomware, the kind ransomware group give you the bill, uh, you pay it, and then, you know, the next day is just business as usual, no effort required. And, you know, that's kind of the... Uh, that's kind of the message these ransomware gangs want to propagate as well. You look at kind of the lockbit customer service is excellent. It's like, oh, we'll help. It's almost consultative. It's quite, it's quite horrible in that, that, that sense. It's like, we'll help you back into production. You know, no mention of the fact it's them that took you out of production in the first place. But, uh, you know, but you're absolutely right. Um, and there's the paranoia as well. You know, based on the initial vector of compromise, whether it be business email compromise or some kind of social engineering that compromises an identity, there's that paranoia that needs to be overcome. You know, there's the initial remediation, but there's going to be a massive degree of threat hunting to determine is there a residual presence or not? Because what, do we trust the international criminal gang to say that, you know, they've left everything the way they found it? Certainly not. Right. right. And I think we even saw there was a, um, uh, commentary post that uh, allegedly has come from the the threat actor in this that kind of laid out everything that they did and they may, we won't get too much into it just because there's so much more that's going to come out um, after this podcast gets released but they're even saying you know 
having super admin privileges to Okta, to other technologies in there that they still have access to your point. Just even if an organization pays the ransom, hey, Chris, give me $100 million. Okay, you know what? Operation, I need, I need to get back to you know my normal life here for my consumers and customers. You pay me the $100 million. That's no guarantee that I still have, have a backdoor in your system or I, there's another way of to get, I know how to get into your system a year later. Um, so to your point, and we, we've seen a lot of different forms of legislation or different advisory groups from the FBI to here in the United States to CISA saying, don't pay the ransom, don't pay the ransom. We just saw allegedly, again, I'm using the word allegedly carefully here. We just saw earlier this week after MGM Caesars Entertainment saying that they were asked for 30 million and they paid 15 million. So even though we're, we're seeing regulatory and large industries, governmental industries saying don't pay the ransom, we're still seeing organizations pay the ransom. Chris, why do you think that is? Well, it's easy for a large body like CISA or the FBI to say, don't pay the ransom. And you can understand why they say it, because, you know, you don't want money funneling into organized criminal groups to further fund their enterprise. And in a logical sense, that makes a lot of sense for a law enforcement agency. But for a business who potentially doesn't pay the ransom and the alternative is they go out of business because they can no longer operate because they're maximum tolerable downtime has been exceeded in getting back up or they haven't got sufficient back backups and stuff. It's a business choice that businesses need to make around what's what is kind of a tolerable amount of downtime and a tolerable avenue of response. Something interesting actually from the filing, the Caesars filing, is that I really liked the Caesars filing. I think it was really well written. Um, and the thing they mentioned around, you know, because there's always a certain, well, these days, there's a certain level of data exfiltration that comes with ransomware as well. It's not just you can't have access to your data. The criminal gang says, hey, we've got your data as well. And they were saying, you know, we paid the ransom and we've received assurances from the gang that they will erase that data their side. And they caveat that with as much as we can be sure that they will. And I think that's a key point. And I think it's really notable. It shows a level of maturity to me, but Caesars actually highlight that in their filing. And, you know, that for me as an information security person, reading these filings for things like threat intelligence and understanding the market certainly helps me kind of defend ourselves as well and shows a really mature approach in my mind. I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, in my career, I was, um, I used to work at IBM way back in the day and uh, I was an incident response consultant. And really my role and my job was to go into some of the world's largest organizations and help design incident response playbooks. And we had a platform and a tool that I worked for at the time that uh, IBM acquired us. And so my job was to go in there, consult with the organization's security teams, run through tabletop exercises. What does a ransomware attack look like? What does a DDoS attack look like? What does a phishing incident look like? Run through that, collect all the different steps, tasks, processes, phases, who's involved, what technologies, and then actually build out that playbook. And more times than not, and this is even five, six, seven years ago, actually even more earlier than that, but uh, more times than not, organizations, even at that time, we always had a playbook. There was a, there was a pivot there of, do you pay the ransom or do you not pay the ransom? And I think it's important for organizations to conceptually think about that with their security teams that to your point, it's easier said than done when federal agencies and governments are saying, don't pay, don't pay. But when, you know, when, uh, when stuff is hitting the fan, <laughs> you have to make a business decision. And sometimes that business decision transcends the CISO and the security department, right? That could be the board and the CEO that say, I don't care. We're paying the ransom because we're going to lose way more money or the lights need to stay on. And I think for organizations thinking about that 
more often and getting with your board, your, C, your C-suite, your other executive levels that are, are going to have an influence on this decision is super, super important as well when determining, am I going to do something or not do something like paying a ransom? Yeah, that certainly is uh, a thing to have tabletops and have those conversations before it happens. Because there's, uh, there's, you know, there's nothing worse than writing the plan while trying to execute the plan. That's generally not good. That's generally not good practice. But to your point, I think those kind of questions are a business decision rather than a security decision. You know, security has a place at the table and can input, you know, the information in relation to the ramifications of either one of the choices, as does IT around, you know, how long would it take without to uh, basically be able to restore systems. But like you say, those decisions go way to the top. Absolutely. Um, so I know Chris and I just talked a lot about, about the MGM and Caesars incident and right. There's only so much we can talk about and allegedly talk about just because we've seen a lot of news. There's been some confusion already in the industry of, you know, who's actually attacking who and what's going on. Um, so we're going to actually leave it there just because as professionals, right, we don't want to make assumptions and assume about what's actually going to happen, but where I want to focus and move kind of this conversation next to is ransomware in general and how can organizations better prepare themselves? And I, I think you and I in the, in the green room before this, we were talking about how we, we both work for security vendors. And now, not that our vendors or companies didn't do this, but you and I both as security professionals went on LinkedIn over the last week and have seen other vendors saying, oh, if you bought our tool, you bought our platform or service, we would have stopped that attack. And it, may, it makes me cringe. I know it probably makes you cringe and almost every other security professional um, in here cringe. And you know we call that ambulance chasing. And without doing that though, I want to talk about how can organizations actually better prepare themselves? As we know, whether you have $100 million, a billion dollars to spend on cybersecurity a year, or even $100,000 a year, every organization is a prime target, especially when we think about things like ransomware, right? Depending on the data you have, the information. To your point earlier, Chris, who is motivated? What is the motivation behind the hackers? Is it nation state? Is it financial? Is it brand reputation? Is it just disruption on a, on a service? And when we think about that, Chris, you've got great experience working um, from banking all the way to, you know, police work all the way to working in a vendor. So you've seen a big wide spectrum of how organizations can build proper security procedures or mitigation plans. Um, where do you start for an organization, for a new CISO that just got hired today? What, what are the top maybe recommendations you have for that individual, he or she, when it comes out to building and how you can prepare, you're seeing this news and you might be a small little organization and you'd be like, man, I don't know, we operate a casino or a financial institution or we're a veterinarian hospital, whatever it might be. Where do I start? What, what are your best practices and recommendations? It's another tough question then, Jeremy, just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to give the tough questions early in the morning. I know they're open-ended questions too. <laughs> no, no, that's fair enough. I think, you know, what I like to think, I, and this is like blatantly stolen from the Sounds Institute, is that I think regardless of your size, if you operate on a model of understanding in your environment what normal looks like, and then from that standpoint, identifying the evil or identifying the abnormal is a whole lot easier. So addressing those things, you know, so for me as a new CISO coming into any company, some of my first questions are, okay, firstly, what do we do? Okay, and you know what are the different business processes that exist? What do they look like? What logging and monitoring strategies do we have to identify things that are abnormal? And I think if you start from that standpoint, you set yourself in really good stead. 
If you look at um, something like the solar winds attack, how that original supply chain thing was identified, it was you know, outside of the kind of specific output of the attack, which we all know about. It was, from what I understand, the second multi-factor device being added to a corporate system that was something that was weird. You know, that isn't something that ordinarily happened. And it was just simply that deviation from normal led to the investigation to determine that actually it was something very wrong happening here. So I think as a starting point, you can't go too wrong with that. I think that that is awesome. I actually use that kind of uh, when I when I talk about talk tracks as well. And actually, the first time I heard that um, was actually from he, it was here in the United States, and it was a professor. He was a teacher uh, for the United States Army for the SEAL teams and the CIA operatives, and he used an acronym. So I, I won't take credit for it. I'll give him the credit. Uh, he used an acronym called BAD, B A D, and the B standing for baselining, baselining and understanding what is normal. What is your traffic? Exactly to what you're talking about. The A, abnorm abnormalities, right? What is abnormal? Are things spiking? Or is someone trying to access our application or system way too often or at the wrong time of the day or night, whatever it might be? And then the D is deciding. So once you baseline, you know what normal is, you see the abnormal activity now, you now have to make a decision. Decide on, do we need to go block that traffic? Do we need to reset credentials? Do we need to do nothing? Maybe the decision is, this is normal. And so I think it's actually, I love how what you just said and kind of what I've always kind of uh, embodied as well as this bad acronym. It's really about, to your point, starting with a baseline of what you have, and that, and that include visibility into asset inventory as well, right? And especially in both of our fields, uh, how many times do we go in and talk to other professionals and they say, so what's on the network, right? I know that's a broad question, but maybe it's in my world, how many APIs do you have? Maybe in your world, it's, you know, how many assets do you have or endpoints or, you know, what's sitting in the cloud? And people say, oh, we have 50. And you do a scan or an assessment and you realize they have 500, right? And so I think baselining is really important and that spreads a lot. But Chris, I, I love kind of what you said there from, you know, baselining your traffic and understanding kind of what's normal and then making some type of decision off that as well. Yeah, exactly. I think the obvious, the obvious counterpoint to that is I like to sit in the other chair often and go, people say, oh yeah, Chris, that's great. Understand normal to identify evil. But, you know, I've come to this company that cybersecurity maturity isn't, you know, how I would hope it to be, you know, we're not in a position to understand what normal is. And, you know, in answer to that, I say, well, yeah, great, that's brilliant. Identify the areas that you need to work on to help you have the visibility to understand what normal is. You know, security is a journey rather than an end place to get to. So as long as we're kind of asking ourselves those reflexive questions, um, I think we're in a good place to be, you know, because Sometimes, you know, I've seen kind of people say, oh, well, actually, the bar to good is so amazingly high. How do I get from here to here? But actually, you just need to iterate. And I think and I think that's the main thing. It can often seem like you have to solve literally every problem in the next quarter. But, you know, that's just not true. You just need to solve the next problem and then move on and on and on. Absolutely. And, and that transcends cybersecurity, right? That, that's great life lessons right there too, yeah. right? Like there's this end journey, but one day at a time and take those steps. And as we both know, security is not easy. Security is hard, right? It, it is a journey and it is ever evolving, ever evolving as technology grows and, you know, our networks grow faster and more threat actors are coming in. And so um, to your point, right, it's, it's sometimes it's the, the baby steps and those are the wins. Um, and so Perfectly said there, Chris. Uh, Chris, I want to change it to the last subject here uh, before we wrap up. So um, I actually got to spend some time recently 
in London about two weeks ago with uh, one of our partners here doing a lot of training and enabling. I had a great time. And, you know, one of the feedback I got or one of the feedback questions I got uh, very commonly was people wanted to know in the UK what was going on in the United States. Oh, we had a field CISO here from the United States. What are you guys seeing? What are your industry saying? What are your regulators saying? And I thought it was just an eye-opening discussion. And when I got to just talk about kind of what we're seeing in the field, what are our top trends, and listening to them as well, talk about kind of what their challenges are. Um, Chris, for our audience, I know you're in the UK, and I think this is a really special episode because you're our first guest that's overseas. And I, I think that's, that's awesome to have you here from your different perspective. And so I'm going to ask you the question that I got asked too. Very, very open question. What are you seeing in the UK right now as far as top challenges, top trends with all different types of organizations? Great question, Jeremy. And I think, you know, highlighting the difference between, from what I see, again, I'm not located in the United States. I'm located in kind of the UK and Europe. You know, I do work in the United States. But something I've noticed, especially over the last few months, about fundamental difference in the way in which organizations approach cybersecurity in a lot of ways. So down to the regulations and the regulatory bodies that seem to be top of mind of businesses. You know, in the United States most recently, you know, these new SEC filing rules have like they've been literally all over the news, you know, what is a material incident? Everybody's discussing trying to figure out what the most palatable definition of that is, either for a business or for a shareholder. Um, yeah, and so it's around finance and business ability to operate, shall we say. I think, you know, if I could sum up the United States, whereas the UK, I think we are very, very much, and in Europe, we're very much around the privacy and GDPR side of things. So when you have a breach in the United States, uh, it's, do I need to do the SEC filing? You know, or what kind of uh, reporting do I need to do? How is this going to affect our bottom line based on the breach? Whereas things I see in the UK is more focused around, okay, so what uh, what PII has been leaked? Is this reportable around GDPR? Am I in scope for a GDPR fine? So I think the tendency, and again, I could be entirely wrong, this is just my personal opinion, is that cybersecurity and information security seems to be done through the lens of GDPR and privacy inside of Europe and the UK, whereas not so much in the United States, it's more around compliance to things like the SEC or to the various different PCI, DSS, HIPAA, and all those kind of things. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's awesome perspectives. And thank you for sharing that and kind of kind of what you see in your lens, you know, versus, you know, the United States, but also from an organization and security standpoint, kind of what we're focused on versus, you know, kind of what's top of the mind. Um, I, I can say that I had a very, very similar experience, you know, when I was talking about kind of from a, a CISO perspective, organizations here and not that it's too much different but you know here in the united states we're concerned right ransomware is a big thing but also to your point it's not it transcends ransomware uh, okay you have an incident how do i inform the right parties fast enough right we talked a little bit in the the background you mentioned too about material incidents and you know you got four days now after disclosing this and what does it mean is it nature is it scope is it impact or is it all the above and actually, you know, kind of tying back to MGM and Caesars, right? We both saw them file 8K filing reportings and saying, yes, we have a material incident. And so it's actually, I'll, I'll use the word cool, right? And kind of making a little light in a cybersecurity incident in chaotic times. It's cool to see that we did have this regulation and it still really hasn't gone too much in effect. I think it's end of the year. Um, but 
seeing these two organizations go through this right now and take actually proper steps when it comes to showing how other organizations, this is how it's done, right? We're going through a cybersecurity incident. This is how we're going to disclose a bit. This is what we're going to do. We're going to play nice with the SEC because we are public companies. And so you're kind of seeing there's them actually paving a path a little bit for other organizations here in the States that are going to go through this, not potentially, that will have to go through this again from a public standpoint. So I think it's actually like shining a little bit of light in goodness. I know cybersecurity, right? It's always sometimes bad news, right? It's uh, breaches and incidents and crypto and everything. But this is actually, when you think bigger and you think beyond it, and you even mentioned you loved reading the the filing in there from Caesars and kind of how they purposely put wording in there. Um, I, I think that's interesting. There, there's some positives here that we're seeing about that can really, if you're a CISO of another public company or a security leader, even a private company, you can actually kind of read these things, look at it and see what are they going through? How are they communicating to the public and all the regulatory bodies as well? So um, I, I love that perspective you said. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly between now and the end of the year, that's what companies will be doing. They'll be paying close attention to these filings, looking at the different ways in which people are formulating these findings and then tracking the results, either that based on share price or press coverage and things, you know, because yes, the SEC say, hey, you need to do a filing. Uh, it needs to be in relation to a material incident, but still quite woolly is, you know, as we've said, what is a material incident, but also what level of granular detail is required inside these filings. The MGM and the Caesars filing are markedly different in their level of deep detail. You know, I'm not saying one is wrong and one is right. I think as we move on and we determine, you know, the results, whether the SEC accept and like these filings, whether the market does, whether the press do in relation to them. And that's something I see, you know, every company is now watching everyone else to see what they'll do and to kind of distill down through the chaos as to some degree of best practice around fulfilling these requirements. And that's interesting times, as you say. It is. And I think for all of our listeners, including us, right, I think this is something that we need to pay close attention to, to kind of see how this pans out. And, uh, you know, I think from both of our perspectives and every information security professional, nobody wants to go through these situations. So, you know, wishing the best of luck to uh, MGM Caesars teams and, everybody else out there. But Chris, I want to thank you again for joining this podcast. I think what we shed the light on and kind of from your perspective was super, super beneficial for our audience and our listeners. And Chris, I just want to turn over to you real quick here for the uh, very final minute. Um, where can people find out more information about you or your company? That's a, that is a great question. Um, find out more information about me on my LinkedIn profile. I have a very distinct surname. Uh, I think I'm the only Chris Denby White in the world. So a simple search uh, will find me. Uh, my company, NextDLP, can be found at www.nextdlp.com. And if you want to find out more about what we do, um, please either link in with me on LinkedIn and I'll pass you to the appropriate person or speak as uh, you know, appropriate from my side. Or by all means, kind of pop on over to our website and uh, see if we can help you. Again, thank you, Jeremy. It's been awesome to be on and chatting with you today. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure, Chris. And I hope I uh, hope I get to see you soon. I know we got to see each other at RSA. So next time in London or next time you're here in the States, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll grab a pint for good old times. Certainly will. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to Exploring Cybersecurity with our, uh, with our guest, Chris Denby-White. Um, again, you can follow him on LinkedIn, check out his company and all the great things that they're doing. And as always, uh, for more episodes of Exploring Cybersecurity, please check out Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming services. Again, thank you, everyone, and enjoy the rest of the days.